the fact that the White House has not only not proactively sought out these engagements, but in fact, no one has really responded to our requests for higher levels of engagement with the Uyghur community is beyond disappointing, to put it lightly. We've heard some disappointing rumors that certain pieces of current legislation won't be voted on because the administration uh, doesn't think that sanctions, et cetera, are a good approach because we want to pursue this thaw in the U.S.-China relationship. And it's extremely shameful. I, as an American, find it absolutely infuriating. I think that the American people would be appalled if they knew the extent to which the largest attention of an ethno-religious group since the Holocaust was being downplayed and sidelined and siloed. From the American Foreign Policy Council in Washington, D.C., I'm Michael Sobolik, fellow in Indo-Pacific Studies, and you're listening to Great Power Podcast. It's an inside look into a world increasingly defined by great powers like the United States and China and others like Russia. It's a forum where national security experts explore how these adversaries threaten the U.S. And it's also a hub for crafting strategies to protect the American people. This is episode 25, Inaction is Complicity. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to this latest episode and for sticking with the show. Secretary of State Antony Blinken returned recently from his trip to China. And as many of you will remember, this trip was delayed because he was supposed to visit China earlier in the year. And... The trip was initially delayed because of China's spy balloon that uh, crisscrossed the United States and executed some figure eight maneuvers above our nuclear facilities in Montana and elsewhere. So for understandable reasons, (laughs) the trip was put on ice. But then uh, what happened over the course of the next few months was the Biden administration chose to calibrate their China policy to make sure that nothing stood in the way of Blinken rescheduling this trip. And what I want to talk about today is the price that the administration paid diplomatically and just in terms of policy to make this trip happen. This takes us back to a really important story that a Reuters reporter, Michael Martina, published a little over a month ago. It was an expose of the State Department's influence on the administration's China policy in particular with sidelining the FBI's report, uh, its investigation into that spy balloon. It highlighted the State Department's freezing of export controls targeting Huawei, the problematic next-generation telecommunications company in China. But more to the point, one of the things that Michael Martina reported in this piece was that very senior officials in the State Department, specifically then Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman, was blocking previously scheduled sanctions on Chinese officials for their complicity in the Uyghur genocide. Now, this is not the first time that the Biden administration 
has downplayed or deprioritized this issue. Uh, speaking of Wendy Sherman, you may recall that in late 2021, she was lobbying senators against the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, the most consequential human rights China bill that's gone through Congress in years. And the administration was lying about it at the time. And then uh, the Washington Post got the story, and then they had to backtrack and the bill passed. Uh, but you'll also recall that at the beginning of the Biden administration, they were hesitant to even recognize and admit that the genocide against the Uyghurs in Xinjiang was still ongoing. That was a huge point of contention, and it was some. It resulted in some very awkward press conferences, both at the State Department and at the in with the White House press corps. You may then also remember that the administration, when they first announced some withhold release orders on importation of problematic uh, solar panel solar panels from China that had slave labor connection to it. Thanks to John Kerry's lobbying inside of the administration, later that year in 2021, the Biden administration picked a small, small handful of these solar companies when there were dozens more they could have slapped with effective import bans. This has been an ongoing issue with the Biden administration. Uh, a hesitancy not to talk about the Uyghur genocide. They, they acknowledge it's happening. They acknowledge it has happened. They admit that it's ongoing. And the president has mentioned it in speeches before. And actually, it's interesting. I want to play a clip uh, of uh, President Biden talking about the Uyghur genocide. This is from remarks in October 2021. When we look around the world today, we cannot say that the specter of atrocity is behind us. We see today the patterns, the choices playing out around the world, even as we speak. The oppression and use of forced labor of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Whenever we hear that kind of poisonous hatred, where we ever we see our fellow human beings being dehumanized, doesn't mean we go to war, but we must speak out. Silence, as my dad would remind me, silence is complicity. So that phrase there, your silence is complicity. It's really interesting. In a lot of the historiography surrounding Franklin Delano Roosevelt, one of the biggest changes of historians' perceptions of the former president was his shocking indifference to the Holocaust, even as the United States was getting intelligence that this was happening. FDR and his State Department actively sat on intelligence. They actively blocked Jewish refugees from resettling in America. They did not take asylum claims seriously at all. And the United States, in conjunction with a lot of the news media at the time, really did not even acknowledge the Holocaust as it was ongoing until the war was over or nearly over. So what's really different with the Uyghur genocide in China today is that some of the most intrepid voices raising awareness about this are journalists. What's also different is that you have bipartisan administrations that are talking a lot about this ongoing atrocity. But it's not that people are silent. It's that people in the face of a, of a genocide today come across as indifferent towards it. 
And it's not that people don't care in their hearts. It's that there are other things that they care more about politically. I want to connect this to this broader conversation about how we compete with China today, with the Chinese Communist Party today. Something the Biden administration has insisted is that we can cooperate and compete simultaneously with a great power adversary. This has been a through line from day one of the administration. And honestly, if you look at some of the published writings of Jake Sullivan before President Biden came into office, this perspective of China was telegraphed for a long time. That this isn't a Cold War, this is a competition that will need to be managed carefully. So it was interesting when Secretary Blinken did go through with this trip, when he went to Beijing, he met with Qinggang, the foreign minister. He met with his counterpart, Wang Yi. He was on the standing committee of the Politburo, who manages uh, foreign policy. And he also met with the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, Xi Jinping. So after all of those meetings, Blinken has this press conference in Beijing and he's asked by a reporter what the trip accomplished. And Blinken talks about the importance of raising issues of disagreement with a regime like the CCP. Listen to this clip. It was important uh, to use this visit for purposes of stabilizing the relationship to be able to directly raise face-to-face issues of concern, uh, places where we have profound differences. Um, those disagreements are pretty well known. They're bilateral challenges, they're global issues, regional security issues, values, human rights. And we did, in great detail and at some length, uh, raise them, discuss them, uh, and that is also beneficial uh, to make sure that we have clarity between us on these differences, clarity on intent. What struck me hearing that is that in some strange way, from this administration's perspective, merely raising an issue in a private meeting with a CCP official is somehow a diplomatic win. What really got me was the tone in the secretary's voice when he said, and we did it, as if it was some huge accomplishment. Notice how he didn't mention with any specificity what he raised. The implication was clear that it was human rights, and it was probably with the Uyghurs, it was probably concerns about Hong Kong and others, and uh, detained Americans, but he didn't mention it. And, and, and listen, if you're on your host's soil in China, there is such a thing as diplomatic protocol. I understand that. But what isn't really a good signal is that silence with specificity combined with the State Department's track record of downplaying the issue of an ongoing genocide. Not to put a too fine a point on it, this is a very, very bad, and I would venture to say shameful look for the United States. And I want to explore why Washington is not doing something about this. I think it's time to start being really specific and open about this. And I, I want to bring onto the show today someone with a lot of personal experience who has encountered this indifference firsthand. Her name is Julie Millsap. Julie is the government relations manager at the Uyghur Human Rights Project. She started advocating for Uyghurs in 2020. Previously, she had been living and working 
in China, in the Inner Mongolian region. And she is one of the strongest voices in Washington on not only why the Uyghur genocide matters, but why it really matters for the United States to address it, not just to talk about it, but to address it. So uh, this is going to be a pretty sober conversation, but I think a very important one, because again, not to put too fine a point on it, there's an ongoing genocide in our world today, and we talk a lot about never again, quote unquote, it's happening again. And it's time to start talking about the indifference that a lot of America's political leaders have about it. Julie, it's a pleasure to speak with you today. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So before we get into the meat of our conversation, which is going to be Secretary Blinken's trip to China and the United States approach to the Uyghur genocide in particular, let's step back if we can and have a broader conversation about human rights. Because uh, especially on not just the, the show like Great Power Podcast, which talks about great power and competition, but even more to the point, U.S. foreign policy, we talk a lot about the national interest and we talk a lot about geopolitics. And historically, as you know very well, and as a lot of our listeners know, human rights has kind of been the ugly stepchild in America's relations with China. So... Can you, Julie, give us a bird's eye view from your vantage point of why human rights matter, not just in foreign policy writ large, but when we talk about American foreign policy? How does human rights fit into that? Sure. Well, I mean, I do think that the Biden administration and most previous administrations actually have been fairly strong on articulating that it's important for America to represent our values abroad. Um, that this is a contributor to global stability. And I certainly think that that's true. But importantly, what I think that policymakers need to keep in mind and what the American people in particular should really keep in mind are that human rights really shouldn't be just a siloed concern that's raised when it's convenient, but it really is a marker of any country's true commitment to improving on any issues. So economic stability, a fair playing field economically, um, even environmental concerns, these are all kind of inextricably tied to certain markers of progress on human rights or red flags, if you will. So while imperfect, U.S. leadership is really still essential in confronting those worst human rights abuses. And as concerns China in particular, I think there's a big misconception among the American public or even policymakers here in D.C. that, you know, China can't tolerate conversations on human rights. A lot of that, again, is this whole tactic of feigned defense that's sort of used strategically against the United States to put us in a corner and make us uncomfortable raising human rights. But it really is quite strategic to be able to have these conversations. If a government is not committed to some fairly basic level things about improving the quality of life or protecting um, certain freedoms and, and rights for its own population, we can be quite certain that they're not going to be a stable partner internationally on a number of issues. Uh, I think that's just reality. And I think it's something that we certainly need to bear in mind. Well, I want to pull on that thread in a bit that you just brought up, the tension between how willing a partner or perhaps a competitor 
is to talk or engage about human rights that actually has implications for the rest of the entire agenda and the rest of the entire relationship. Let's put a pen in that and let's come back to it. But for now, Julie, I, I know that when we talk about human rights writ large, uh, and I look at the work that you do specifically, you have dedicated a good bit of your professional life to the atrocities in China that are impacting Uyghurs, uh, particularly the ongoing genocide in Xinjiang that targets Uyghur Muslims and a collection of other religious and ethnic minorities. So uh, I think listeners of this show are pretty familiar with the origins of the Uyghur genocide. I think there's broad understanding and awareness of what has been happening, but I think what could be helpful is a brief overview of recent developments. Uh, for instance, in 2021, the outgoing Trump administration released a finding of genocide, which the Biden administration subsequently upheld. And there have been a range of estimates, the high end that I've seen suggesting that around 2 million Uyghurs or so in Xinjiang have been a victim of this ongoing genocide. But could you put more color to that word genocide, which is a, a weighty loaded word, but I think a word that's thrown around without perhaps a lot of explanation. So when we talk about genocide of the Uyghurs today, right now in 2023, What's happening to them? What's What are some of the more recent developments there? I think one thing to bear in mind starting out is we're entering the seventh year of active genocide. And so unfortunately, not a lot has changed uh, for people on the ground in the Uyghur homeland. And that's really important for us to realize when we're looking at the implications of um, foreign policy on people that are actually on the ground. Um, one uh, thing that we are observing, though, is that there are increased prison sentences being given out. So even for people that have, quote unquote, graduated from these re-education camps or programs, um, which it does seem there's pretty widespread knowledge and awareness of, what we're seeing now is that people are increasingly um, receiving prison sentences for very minor offenses. You know, even very recently, a Uyghur student who had returned a pretty high profile case um, for her participation in the white paper movements, and by participation, I mean just posting something online, received a prison sentence. And that's very important for us to understand. I think we still hear a lot of times that, well, you know, by China's own constitution, under Chinese law, a lot of what's happening is not consistent. And of course, I think this is a ridiculous and naive thing to even look at. Chinese law is completely meaningless. Um, a, lot, a phrase that gets tossed around a lot is that China's not a country that's ruled by law, it's a country that has laws, and that's very accurate. And those laws can be weaponized and yielded against weavers in particular in extrajudicial ways. And so we observe that we do see an increasing number of people also moving through work transfer programs into mainland China. This is really important to note because, of course, with the passage of the Weaver Forced Labor Prevention Act, which was taking a really important step particularly with the provision of rebuttable presumption for companies to prohibit the import of goods that are made with slave labor in Xinjiang, we now see that people are going to increasingly be moved into the mainland. So what our response to that is going to be, um, I think, will be 
um, an interesting problem for policymakers to begin to examine, particularly in light of the fact that the Weaver Forced Labor Prevention Act has been incredibly difficult to implement for many reasons. So those are some of the trends. Another thing that we're noticing is that as the Chinese economy is in increasingly dire situation, some people are being given their passports back, and there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of rhyme or reason to who, but we do have increasing reports of some Uyghurs that are coming out and then effectively being used as propaganda tools for the Chinese Communist Party. They will come and visit people in diaspora communities in Australia or Europe or even increasingly here in the United States and tell them, you know, everything is fine. You guys need to tone down your activism. None of this is happening. Of course, when those people get pressed, um, they can't really give a lot of specific information to actually um, contradict the information that we are putting out. And it's very clear that they've sort of been deployed for these short-term visits for that very specific purpose. So that's not necessarily surprising and it's not necessarily a new tactic that's used by the CCP, but the fact that it's happening right now, I think is very important for policymakers to, to note that China is again, having an uptick in this sort of um, need to put out this international facing propaganda narrative, which means they're particularly susceptible and vulnerable to criticism right now because the economy is in such a bad place. So again, I think that has a lot of implications for us and how we use strategic leverage to achieve progress on human rights. But as of right now, with those trends in mind, uh, unfortunately, not a lot has changed for people back, back in the region. They're still stuck in factory jobs working as modern day slaves. How that fits in with genocide, I think is good to clarify for people as well. What we're looking at is a population of people that would typically be of marriage age that are not entering those relationships, they're not having children. And so there's sort of a, a multi-layer purpose behind a lot of the policies that the Chinese government is, is implementing. So genocide is ongoing. Births are still being prevented. People are still dying. People are still ending up imprisoned. And most notable Uyghur Americans here in the DC, Virginia area, and all over the United States still remain completely cut off from their relatives who would be considered either missing persons or political prisoners. What's difficult, Julie, for me to fathom and wrap my mind around with what you said is the seventh year of a genocide and not much has changed. And to be abundantly clear, the, the word genocide legally comes from what was at the 1948 convention on mm -hmm. genocide in the wake of the World War II and the Nazi atrocities against Jews. And the technical term genocide means an ambition to destroy in whole or in part a particular group of people with some sort of common identity. And there are a number of different ways that that intent to destroy can be manifest. But when we talk about an ongoing genocide in the seventh year, that's what we're talking about. And this is not just an, another update report on from, from another political activist about how some cause is going seven years down the road. This is a stain on the moral conscience of the world. Mm -hmm. And when we said never again in the 20th century, that had a lot of moral force behind it. But when I hear you say that we're seven years down and not only are things not really changing, things are progressing and geographically moving beyond Xinjiang into the rest of China, 
saying that that's deeply concerning feels inadequate. This mm -hmm. raises for me a lot of questions about why there hasn't been more of a concerted response, not just a rhetorical response, but an actual policy response to this. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think this is a good segue into what we are and maybe what we're not doing. So mm -hmm. let me ask you this, Julie, you mentioned the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. That was in 2021 at the end of the year. And it, the most consequential China story in DC media circles of that entire year broke on December 2nd, when Josh Rogan of the Washington Post got the scoop that the Deputy Secretary of State at the time was lobbying senators against a bill that would ban imports of Uyghur forced labor products. It was shocking. It was striking. And it forced the administration, the Biden administration to drop their opposition to the bill, which subsequently passed. But that's also in 2021. So let me ask you this. If the Uyghur genocide itself hasn't changed that much, what about Washington's response to it? it from your vantage point, has that changed or has that remained the same as well? I think there's a, a twofold way to answer. So on the one hand, I think Washington's viewpoint on it has not changed. I think that our policymakers on a bipartisan level are extremely aware um, of what is happening and the moral obligation that the United States has to respond. But I do think what's changed is the sort of anticipation of accountability or prioritization. From my vantage point, the U.S. response has been the strongest and yet is entirely inadequate. And what we're observing, particularly in the last year or so, uh, is really that the issue is being sidelined from the administration. In Congress, again, awareness is, is fairly strong. And I think that there is a lot of desire from policymakers um, to do the right thing, both from a geopolitical mindset, but also from, from a moral standpoint. I think that these atrocities are so egregious that it is very hard even for policymakers to ignore. But I do think what is happening um, with a lot of people in the administration is that there's sort of this viewpoint that they don't want to upset the status quo too much. Um, I think a lot of what they're viewing their jobs as representing is sort of maintaining a sort of stability in terms of the relationship between the U.S. and China. Now, from my point of view, a lot of that approach is not grounded in reality, even though they view it as being a realistic approach. I think that it is easy in many ways to try to overlook a genocide when they don't have the images of mass killings and they don't view it as potentially an issue that the American public will have widespread outcry over. By the same token, I think it's important for them to realize that China actually prioritizes the Uyghur genocide and what's happening with Uyghurs as a um, top tier national security issue. And so for us to continue to think that by downplaying or kind of giving lip service to stopping genocide and standing for our values while not pressing China on it and not actually continuing to press for more sanctions, et cetera, um, they're actually demonstrating to China that we don't prioritize our values to the same extent even that, that they do. And so there's really, really disastrous implications of that. I also think there are a lot of people that genuinely believe that 
by sort of pushing aside human rights concerns, as they would call it, they can achieve some sort of stability that's going to prevent war with Taiwan. Again, I think that that's a ridiculous and incredibly naive mindset that doesn't take into account the ideology behind what China is doing. I think that there are a lot of people in the administration that are leftovers from the Obama administration and have have a very unrealistic worldview. And in a lot of ways, the same mistakes that have been made in foreign policy for years and years and years by multiple administrations are just being repeated again with the Biden administration at a very key time. That's not to say there haven't been some positive developments. We were impressed with the CHIPS Act. I think that targeted sanctions of, in March of 2021 were great, but then nothing happened after that. And it's very hard for us to sustain momentum, quite bluntly, seven years on. Of course, this was a top-down issue where policymakers became aware before the American public, but now at this point in time, it's it's still pretty easy to sort of say, okay, Uyghurs, yeah, we heard of them, but you know, we don't see images of mass graves and it's not something that's necessarily on the average consumer's radar so we can get away with sidelining. And I think this is, we're at a very key point in time where China is learning exactly what they can do to use this issue to pressure the United States to do their bidding rather than the other way around. And of course, a big piece that I'd be remiss if I did not mention is that this administration is very focused on getting a climate deal with China. If you look at previous agreements and how those have played out, actually not just on environment, but any international treaty agreement with China, I think it's idiotic to take the approach of thinking that if we're silent on human rights and don't push out additional sanctions, that we will make progress on climate. Again, like I said earlier, climate and human rights are inextricably linked. China for decades has actually committed to make some reforms that would be creating some potential for progress on climate issues, but they don't even have an ability to implement a lot of those policies because of corruption in society and because of, of a lack of political will within the Chinese Communist Party. And certainly sidelining human rights is not going to create that will. China doesn't have a strong desire to create a better world for its own people. And so it's very unrealistic to think that it's going to put the desires of the international community as concerns climate first and foremost. China does what's best for the Chinese Communist Party. It seeks win-win solutions that are a double win for the Chinese Communist Party. And I think in a lot of ways that we are crippled by the election cycle, and that's what's happening with the Biden administration, that if we can get some sort of commitment in this very short term, four years, that's higher priority for us than actually looking at long-term sustainable solutions and uh, holding China accountable, even in creating clean energy solutions that aren't utilizing slave labor. And so again, by siloing human rights concerns, it's just created an environment in Washington, D.C. that makes people prioritize things based on the short term and what they view as being realistic without taking into understanding that, again, the precedent that's set by ignoring a genocide and the largest detention of an ethno-religious group since the Holocaust is going to create such an enormous stain it already has. And it's affirming for China that the United States, when it comes right down to it, when the rubber meets the road, is not going to stand up for their principles and values. And so things are quite dire right now. Let's get a bit more specific here. You mentioned something publicly in the days following Secretary of State Antony Blinken's trip to China, where he met with high-level officials there, including Xi Jinping, the General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. In the wake of that meeting, you posted something on Twitter and you said that it's 
remarkable. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, so uh, take that for what it's worth. But as I remember it, you said, it's really remarkable to see America's chief diplomat fly to China for a meeting on Xi Jinping's home turf while the White House won't even let Uyghur groups onto the premises for official business, for meetings. Yeah. yeah. That to me is striking. And I, I want, I, I've been wanting to ask you about that, Julie, when you say the, the administration not only is hesitant for these meetings, but they're not allowing the victims of genocide and their advocacy representatives to meet on White House property. Number one, am I understanding that correctly? Number two, if I am, what's, what's happening there? What's going on? I read a quote from Ambassador Nicholas Burns, who by and large, I think has probably one of the most difficult jobs in the world today uh, in terms of being U.S. ambassador to China. But uh, he, he made a statement following Blinken's trip that we don't lose anything by talking. And I think that that statement is extremely misinformed, to put it lightly. And yes, I, I, I stand by what I say in terms of what the White House prioritization has been, because I can attest that I personally, on behalf of Uyghur groups, have requested meetings, even in the EEOB, for a long time now. And we and, and for the listeners who don't know what that means, the Eisenhower Executive Office Building Suite, just across the street from yes. the uh, from the West Wing. Yes, and our reasons for requesting the meetings are that we want to be in communication with people, particularly in the NSC, about updates that we receive from on the ground. A lot of communication actually comes to. Uyghur organizations to our leadership pass through the chain. And this is not something even that I trust that U.S. government officials would necessarily have context or information about. And so a lot of it is just pragmatically, we want to be in communication. We want to, in the safest and most secure environment, be providing those type of updates. And we also expect to an extent that we should receive some information about the strategy going forward and what is happening in terms of pushing for progress to stop the genocide and on broader human rights concerns. And we've really sort of been strung along in a lot of ways. And eventually we did have some meetings outside of White House property with lower level officials. Again, from my viewpoint, those interactions are not secure. And I find it disappointing that, again, they only see this issue as enough of a priority to, to send a, an extremely junior level person to take the meetings. And then we don't see any sort of public displays of support from the White House. We don't see any of that. And, and to say that we don't lose anything by talking sort of ties in, I think, with another key point that we often raise that messaging actually is extremely important. China needs to see it demonstrated that the United States is standing with victims of this genocide. We have multiple survivors of the camps living here in the DMV area. And say what you will about the Trump administration or Trump, I don't think that President Trump cared at all about Uyghurs, but there were people in his administration that were really fantastic and um, moved the needle forward. And a lot of that came from personal motivation from meeting with these victims and understanding. It's really, really different to actually be sitting across the room from somebody that experienced these things directly. It brings understanding and, and context in a way that reading a policy brief wouldn't. And I think it's extremely important. So the fact that the White House has not only not proactively sought out these engagements, but in fact, no one has really responded to our requests for higher levels of engagement with the Uyghur community 
is beyond disappointing, to put it lightly. What about Congress, truly? I'm, I'm, I've been wondering, uh, I guess mainly because I've been having some of these similar conversations with Uyghurs that you have had. My, um, my wife and I have befriended a number of Uyghurs in the area. And as soon as you hear the firsthand account of a genocide, it becomes more than a word and, and it becomes more than an item on, on a readout sheet for a meeting. It becomes very personal. And I mean, foreign policy is personal, but it's usually talked about and practiced in a very impersonal way. But few things make it more personal than a connection to an atrocity when a loved one is involved. Yeah. And something that's really struck me in some of these conversations with American citizens who are also Uyghurs is that many of their representatives in Congress are similarly hesitant to lead on this issue for their constituents. Yeah. As, a, as a former Hill staffer, I can attest that fewer things are more important to an effective member of Congress than representing the needs of your constituents well. And more than that, not just representing their needs, meeting their needs in as much as you can. Yeah. And sure, there are always things that are outside of your control, but like this is basic congressional 101 stuff here. And yeah. I've been shocked to see some of that stiff arming distance that you just described from the administration, to see it from some members on Capitol Hill when the people on the other side of that ask are their own voters. Yeah. Um, can, have you seen that as well? I have. Um, and it's disappointing. And to be fair, you know, there can be a lot of political volleyball that occurs surrounding this issue. By and large, there's still bipartisan support for Uyghurs, but we do see an increasing number of members that are starting to put that distance up or really not picking up the mantle of leadership or obligation to help your constituents like you just articulated. I do see that. I think a lot of people would be shocked to learn that some of the weakest members of Congress actually uh, on a bicameral basis, I would say, are in Virginia, where there is the largest Uyghur American constituency. We have to fight for any slight bit of attention or even a letter. That's extremely disappointing. I do think a lot of it does come from sort of taking the administration's lead on things. I also think, again, on to be fair, on both sides of the aisle, sometimes there is a tendency um, with Republicans to say, well, why isn't the administration doing more? Democrats should be doing this, da, 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 da. And really what we want to see is, is the sort of continued commitment that we observed in getting the Weaker Force Labor Prevention Act passed to say, no, let's look at where the weaknesses are in American foreign policy and how we can fill in those gaps. Let's look at how we can tangibly support the victims of genocide and those weaker Americans that have their family members that are still caught up back home, that they're cut off from, even that have received prison sentences or had their passports seized. We would anticipate that members of Congress would, beyond just bare minimum serving their constituencies, that they would use this as a key issue to highlight and that they would um, pressure the administration effectively as well as part of that obligation that they owe to their to their constituents. But we don't see that happening. It's by and large the case, it's very difficult to even get them to meet with Uyghur Americans. We've We've heard some disappointing rumors that certain pieces of current legislation won't be voted on because the administration 
doesn't think that sanctions, et cetera, are a good approach because we want to pursue this thaw in the U.S.-China relationship. And my blunt assessment is that members of Congress are well enough informed and have heard from enough constituents that they should know that that is not an acceptable lead to take and that should not be what is dictating who they meet with. It's extremely shameful. I, as an American, find it absolutely infuriating. And I do hope as well, to be fair, that Uyghur Americans will continue to realize that they can be incredibly grateful to this country for the safe haven that it has provided and for many of the strong policy steps that have been taken to address Uyghur genocide, but that they are just as entitled as anyone else to also say, this is not enough, and to express righteous indignation and anger that their elected officials are not doing what they need to do to support them. So, um, Julie, as we wrap up, I, one final question for you. What circumstances are necessary, I, I don't know how else to put it, for elected officials in Washington to care more, care to the point of adjusting the list of priorities with China in such a way that preventing and punishing genocide goes to where I think it should belong, which is a top tier issue. Mm -hmm. uh, it's clearly not right now, as you've laid it out for us. Mm -hmm. What would have to happen in our political system under the current leadership we have now for that to change? I think two things. I think uh, from the policymakers' perspective, we need to be doing a lot more to highlight the issue of transnational repression. The fact that these things are happening both in and outside of Chinese borders and that this is increasingly an issue that is affecting and will continue to affect American citizens. This is an actual assault on our own um, sovereignty, on our own national security. And no matter what China says, um, or no matter what kind of diplomatic engagements happen, the reality is that China is increasingly targeting foreign citizens and people that are on foreign soil uh, to punish them, to silence them, to use their family members back in China against them. And the implications of not addressing that, which is very strongly tied to the Uyghur genocide and, and the Chinese Communist Party's desire to keep criticism of that silent, we will increasingly see that uh, there are massive, massive um, problems. Again, I think this was illustrated in sort of the political debate surrounding the Chinese spy balloon. And it's not actually just about the balloon. It's about what does this represent? What does the situation represent in terms of what we're willing to accept as a country, what China is willing and feels comfortable to do and engage in? And so um, policymakers need to understand that human rights is also closely linked to our national security. And transnational repression will illustrate that in a strong way. So I think the continued focus in Congress, for example, on the Transnational Repression Policy Act, it's a good strong starting step, but the administration also needs to address that. We need to be seeing that in diplomatic engagements, Chinese diplomats are called out for the multiple instances that are occurring on a daily basis where foreign citizens are targeted by the Chinese government. Secondly, I do think that we need to increasingly, as the Select Committee on China has sought to do, make these issues public facing so that American people really understand why these policies are being implemented, what is happening and why. Again, it sounds cliched, but I do not think that the American people want to continue to consume goods that are produced with slave labor, but it still remains the case that a lot of people are not aware. 
I think that the American people would be appalled if they knew the extent to which the largest attention of an ethno-religious group since the Holocaust was being downplayed and sidelined and siloed. So in order for that to happen, a lot of the heavy burden still falls on activists, again, to be making sure that along with pushing policymakers in the right direction, that we are continuing to create the environment in which the American people can articulate as well that this is not acceptable. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that this is coming and that it's also in the administration's best interest to make sure that they're being consistent with what they articulated as their own values and priorities. As we wrap up here, Julie, I'll tell you the quote that I've I've been thinking about over the past few days. Sometime over the past year, I can't remember exactly when, but President Biden was giving a speech and he mentioned the Uyghurs in this speech. And he referenced a line from the Nuremberg trials, your silence is complicity. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the awkward space that we're in right now. It's not that America's leaders are silent about the greatest imprisonment of an ethno-religious minority since the Holocaust. They talk about it openly. It's that it's not a top policy priority for them to address. And I think that makes this difficult politically, because if you're willing to talk about something, it gives the appearance that you're also willing to do something about it. Sadly, as you have laid out and explained based on your own experience, it doesn't seem to me that our leaders are willing to really do anything meaningful at all about this. But I was really looking forward to having you on this podcast, not only for you to be able to share more broadly these frustrations that the Uyghur community are bumping into, but because I think it it also highlights the critical role that human rights activists play in American foreign policy with mm-hmm. keeping America consistent and true to the principles that birthed our country in the first place, principles that are timeless and principles that we would do well to continue to embrace. So um, Julie, thank you for coming on the show and more so thank you for all the work that you're doing. Uh, just really appreciate the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe and leave a rating or review. To learn more about AFPC's research, visit us online at afpc.org. For questions or comments, you can reach me at greatpowerpod at afpc.org. I'm Michael Sobolik, and you've been listening to Great Power Podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time.
I personally, on behalf of Weaver Groups, have requested meetings, even in the EEOB, for a long time now. We want to be in communication with people, particularly in the NSC, about updates that we receive from on the ground. A lot of communication actually comes to Uyghur organizations, to our leadership, passed through the chain. And this is not something even that I trust that U.S. government officials would necessarily have context or information about. We want to, in the safest and most secure environment, be providing those type of updates. And we also expect that we should receive some information about the strategy going forward, pushing for progress to stop the genocide. Really sort of been strung along in a lot of ways. And eventually we did have some meetings outside White House property with lower level officials. From my viewpoint, those interactions are not secure. And I find it disappointing that they only see this issue as enough of a priority to send a, an extremely junior level person to take the meetings. And then we don't see any sort of public displays of support from the White House. We don't see any of that. 